Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and uh, just to share a little bit. Uh, my connection with uh, East Bay Calvary is very minimal, but I did a wedding here about four years ago. Young man from your church and a young lady from the church where I was at uh, got married and I did the wedding here and uh, I'll never forget it because um, it was April and we had a blizzard. And, uh, and I was sicker than a dog. And I remember driving home in that blizzard after the rehearsal on Friday night and driving back on Saturday to do the wedding. And, and uh, wow. My main connection, however, happens to be just recently, my wife and I have gotten to know and are hoping to get to know even better, a former pastor that you had here for years, Pastor Dennis. And we just uh, have enjoyed so much our fellowship with him. Part of my connection with him is uh, uh, his youngest daughter, uh, Libby, and her family, and his oldest son, John, and their family were part of our church in Cadillac. So that's how I knew them. And then come to find out, as I got to know uh, Kendall, that him and I grew up about nine miles from each other. Never knew each other until about two years ago. So it's a small world. That little thing, a small world. Well, it's a delight to be there. If you have your Bible, I would like you to turn to Psalm 46. You know, I say that. I, when I say you have your Bible, and I know in so many churches, a lot of times people don't bring their Bibles. You know, one of the things I texted Kendall last night, and I uh, shared with him about preaching here, and I said, you know, one of the things I was excited about preaching here was knowing that uh, just getting to know him, I know that you are a people prepared to receive the word of God. And so I'm excited about that. I'd like to read Psalm 46, and I would like to have you stand with me as we read it. I'll read it and you follow along. I'm using the English Standard Version, so whatever version you might use, God will forgive you. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. It is our nourishment, it is our food, it is the bread of life. We thank you, Father, for the resident teacher, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, without whose help we couldn't understand any of it. 
and without whose help and strength we couldn't apply any of it. So we are grateful, Father, for your goodness. We are grateful that you are feeding us this morning. Holy Spirit, teach us today the truths that you would have for your people through me. Take me out of the way and let Jesus be exalted and the word of God be honored. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to notice in, in your Bible the inscription. The inscription is right above verse 1. Now I know that uh, there's a lot of study Bibles out there and uh, a lot of people have study Bibles and uh, sometimes it's difficult to convince people that the notes are not inspired. The text is inspired but the notes are. So now you see these inscriptions at the beginning of some of these Psalms. And you may think that they're put in there by the publisher. They're not. They're part of the original text. They were to help us understand the Psalms. So we see in this particular one, it says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. This was a, this was a psalm that was to be sung, as all the psalms were. But particularly we know that because it's addressed to the choir master. So there was a choir that would sing this song as the people met together to worship. The sons of Korah is probably a group that they didn't write it, but they probably put it together, orchestrated it, gathered it together to be put in with the other psalms. And then you see a little phrase according to Alamoth. That is the Hebrew word that means girl or high-pitched voice. So probably this psalm was sung by a soprano. Or it was played by a high-pitched instrument. So we know a little bit about this psalm. As we read this psalm together, I want you to notice some other things with it. First of all, there were three stanzas or three sections to this psalm. And they're easily noted because each section ends with the word selah or selah. We're not sure what that means. We're not sure what the word selah means. Uh, we think it might be a musical notation, such as a pause or a rest. Uh, it's been come to understood as a time to pause and reflect. In other words, you read a section, you see the word selah, and you stop and you think about it. That's what the psalmist wanted us to do, was stop and to think about it. It's very obvious as we were written, write, uh, reading this psalm that it, this psalm was written to bring comfort to those who were going through times of trouble and confidence in the power of God as they went through that trouble, that he was in control of all things. One of the things you may notice on this psalm is it's lacking in the description was the indication of what the background of this psalm was. Many of the psalms have that. For instance, if you would go to Psalm 3, I mean, you don't have to go there right now, but if you read Psalm 3, you'll notice in the description at the beginning before verse 1, it says, when it was written by David, it'll say, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So we can go back into Samuel and we can see that account of when Absalom tried to assert control over the kingdom from his father David, and we get a little idea of how Psalm 3 came to be about. Or Psalm 18 was another psalm of David, and the description will say there, when 
he was rescued from the hand of Saul. And you go back into Samuel and you remember some of the events of David running from King Saul because King Saul was trying to take his life all the time. But what about this psalm? There's no inscription. What's the background of this psalm? I think there's some hints as to what this psalm uh, may have been written, what it may have been the occasion, what particular time in Judah's history is uh, provided as a background for this psalm. I just think I'm going to just uh, suggest this to you. We don't know this 100%. But I happen to believe that this was during the reign of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a king of the southern kingdom Judah. You remember the nation of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 13, was split into two separate kind of nations. One was called the northern kingdom, and through the rest of Kings and Chronicles, that's referred to as Israel, and one was called the southern kingdom with Jerusalem, and that was called uh, Judah, all through the way through uh, 2 Kings and Chronicles. This was Hezekiah. And he was the 13th king from Solomon of the king of of Judah. And it was also during the prophetic reign or ministry of the prophet Isaiah. The story, the background that I think is for this psalm is given to us in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. And I'm not going to have you turn there. It would take far more time than we've got this morning to be able to go through that. So I'll tell you, it's great reading for you this afternoon or the rest of the week. 2 Kings 18 through 19. But let me give you a little synopsis of what was going on at that time. The major world power during that time was a nation called Assyria. And the Assyrians were led by a king named Sennacherib. Any of you name your children Sennacherib in the Bible? Okay, didn't think so. Sennacherib wanted to conquer Judah, the southern kingdom, and he wanted to do it for a number of reasons. Now, he'd already conquered the northern kingdom. Matter of fact, five years before Hezekiah became king, he already conquered the northern kingdom. So the northern kingdom, Israel, doesn't even exist now. He took all the people out of there and left the land completely desolate. So the only part of Israel, the whole nation of Israel that exists, is this southern kingdom, Judah, where Hezekiah is the king. So now he wants to conquer that. And so one of the reasons that he did that is because Hezekiah rebelled from his father and took land back that belonged to Judah in the first place. And now Sennacherib, it's payback time. And he wants to set the record straight. So he brings this huge army. Massive, massive army. Nothing that Judah could match at all. And he surrounds Jerusalem completely. And then he sends a committee to issue a warning to the people and to Hezekiah. And then after he sends a committee, he writes a letter And he sends this letter with the committee to Hezekiah, telling them why they shouldn't trust in the Lord, why they shouldn't trust in Hezekiah, why he's going to conquer this land again, and if they would just surrender to him, he'll make life absolutely beautiful for them. Well, Hezekiah takes this letter to the temple and he spreads it out before the Lord. Hezekiah was a godly king. There were a lot of kings that weren't godly in Judah's time, but Hezekiah was one of the godly kings. He spreads this letter out before the Lord and he offers up an earnest prayer for help. And very quickly, the prophet Isaiah sends messengers to Hezekiah to tell him that God has heard his prayer and he's going to answer it. 
and he's going to destroy the Assyrians. And that's exactly what happens. When you get to the end of 2 Kings 19, let me read this for you, and I I think it may be up here on the PowerPoint. You can see it. I'm not going to have you turn there. 2 Kings 19, verse 34 through 35. God says this through the prophet Isaiah, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 35 says this, And that night... The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Wow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being surrounded by this massive army? You don't have enough people to even begin to fight against them. You're hearing these threats from a man who has already conquered all the nations around you, who has already taken your other part, the northern kingdom, captive, and totally obliterated them. And now he's making threats against you. And you have not succumbed to those threats. You are trusting in the Lord. But it's still a scary place to be. Can you understand now the opening phrase of Psalm 46, verse 1? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So I believe that Hezekiah or Isaiah possibly wrote this psalm, and 2 Kings 18 and 19 is the background for this psalm. So great and marvelous was this victory. So great and marvelous was this deliverance that since that time the people of God have turned to this psalm whenever disaster has struck, whenever things seemed hopeless and confusing. By the way, this really isn't a psalm just about disaster. This is a psalm about our sovereign, almighty God, who, by the way, is still in the business of defending and delivering his people from or in times of disaster and trouble. Amen? Amen. Now, it's not hard to break this psalm down because uh, it kind of does that by itself. Since the psalm is about God, what this psalm does then is it gives us three important truths concerning God that we need to know when trouble comes. How many of you have ever had trouble come? Okay, so here are three truths that you need to know about God when trouble comes that comes from this psalm. And I don't know whether uh, you know this or not, but I'm actually going to be here for the next three Sundays. So we are going to be stuck in this psalm for three weeks. Okay, and we're going to look at these three important truths, one truth each Sunday for the next three weeks. And those truths are this, that God is our harbor, verses 1 through 3. God is our help, verses 4 through 7. And God is our hope, verses 8 through 11. Let's begin this morning, verses 1 through 3, looking at God as our harbor. Let me read for you verses 1 through 3 again. God is by the way i don't know if you circle words in your bible i don't know if you mark in your bible i have to buy a new bible every five years because i can't read the original print but mark these things i circle this god is circle is our circle that god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear 
Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And of course, the word selah, think about that. I want you to notice three declaratives about God that come in those verses. Matter of fact, the three declaratives actually all come in verse 1. Notice, first of all, that God is our refuge. Refuge, a shelter, a place of security, a place of trust, a place of safety, a place where one can go quietly for protection. And that speaks to me of a couple of very important things that we need to know. Number one, it speaks of that which is personal. I had you circle it. See, it is true when you read the Bible that God is a refuge. Is that not true? It is true that God is the refuge. But I want you to notice here what he says. He is certainly a person that we can run to. He is certainly a person we can find shelter. And it's a shelter that comforts. He is a comforting shelter. But he's more than that. He's more than just a refuge. He's more than just any refuge. Notice it's personal. He's what? He's our refuge. He's my refuge. He's your refuge. He isn't just any refuge. He's our refuge. He's our comfort. I remember when I was a little kid, and uh, it's getting harder and harder to remember when I was a little kid, but I remember when I was a little kid, and I was scared of storms. I uh, totally had a transformation in that. I now am actually certified to be a storm chaser. I love storms, okay? And um, I, I pray for the people in Gaylord and all that, and all I could say was I wish I was there, okay? Because uh, I just, I, I, I love storms. I love watching them. I love the lightning. I love the thunder. I love the tornado as long as it's heading the other way from me. But when I was a kid, I didn't. I was scared. And I can remember every now and then we'd have storms come up. We lived down there in the Lansing area, Michigan, and uh, we'd have storms come up, and sometimes there were tornado watches, tornado warnings. And, and I remember my mom and dad, they'd take us downstairs, and my dad would explain to me, or my mom would explain to me and to my brother that this was a shelter. You know, we were down in the basement. We'd be in this certain corner because that's the best place to be. That We would be sheltered. There was a refuge there. You know what was interesting? That was a shelter for me. But the personal shelter was when my dad would sit next to me and kind of put his arm around me. Or when my mom would sit next to me and my brother, she had my brother in one arm and me in the other. She was my refuge. She was my shelter. He, my dad was my shelter. Yeah, we were in a shelter, but it wasn't as good as my personal shelter, having my parents there. Do you get the understanding of that? I think that's why David could say in Psalm 23, 4, very familiar, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you with me. For you with me. He's the refuge. That's who God is. He's your comforting shelter. He's your harbor if you know him. And it speaks of that which is personal. But not only does it speak of that which is personal, secondly, it speaks of that which is protective. Sometimes God shields us from trouble. We read Psalm 91, one of the worship 
team members this morning read Psalm 91, one of my favorite psalms. Sometimes he shields us from the trouble. Sometimes he shields us from hurt. Sometimes we go through some of those things, don't we? But regardless, we never go through it without him. Do you realize that we are shielded every day? I don't know if you thought about this or not. Satan is always attacking us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said in John 8, 44 that he is a murderer. He described him in John chapter 10 as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to do that. He wants to do that to your individual lives. He wants to do that to your marriage. He wants to do that to your children. He wants to do that to your church. He wants to do that to your, your, your community. This is the work of Satan constantly. He's always wanting to do that. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest examples of that is in the Old Testament with Job, right? You're familiar with Job? You know what, the interesting thing about Job, I've read that account for years and years and years, and here's this little wager going on between God and Satan. Job doesn't even know anything about it. Satan comes to God and he says, hey, God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him. Perfect, upright, one who fears me and turns away from evil. And Satan does a little trash talking. And he says... That's not a big deal. You think Job fears you for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around all that he has? But take away that hedge. Take away that hedge and let me have him. And he will curse you to his face. You know, I read that for years. And one day, it just dawned on me. I think the Holy Spirit finally just got it through, brought it to my mind. Very interesting thing. How did Satan know there was a hedge there? other than the fact that every day he was trying to get through it. Every day he was trying to get through it, but there was a hedge there that protected Job and his family. Psalm 91, verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it won't come near you. Sometimes trouble does, but it's not an always thing. And the ultimate deliverance, we have assurance of the ultimate deliverance, don't we? I have a grandson, I had a grandson seven years old, two years ago was diagnosed with brain cancer, and, or four years ago, and then passed away two years ago. And thousands and thousands of people praying for him. And you know what? A lot of people believe that God was going to heal him. Uh, my daughter and her husband prayed fervently that God would heal him. And uh, I remember doing the funeral of my seven-year-old grandson. And you know, the first thing that I said when I stood up there was I say, I want you to know something today. God, God's word is true. God just healed him. He healed him. Sometimes he heals now. Sometimes he heals later. Sometimes, but he heals ultimately. Sometimes he protects now, sometimes he protects later, but he protects ultimately, right? Because he is in control of everything. He is our refuge. It speaks of that which is personal. It speaks of that which is protective. Secondly, notice another de declarative of here. Not only is God our refuge, God is our strength. The word oz, oz, speaks of force and security. Now, I want you to notice something that's very important here. It isn't that God gives us strength. That's not what this is talking about. He does that, right? 
We know that God gives us strength. Psalms 119, verse 28, the psalmist said, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. He gives us strength. Gives us strength through the word. The apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that verse that probably most of you have memorized, I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. I love the fact you participate. You know that? Just love that. Thank you. But it isn't that God gives us strength here. More importantly, notice He is our strength. Yes, He gives strength, but He also is our strength. Let me, let me illustrate this to you if I can. You take a piece of wire, just flimsy wire. You know, you can bend that wire any direction you want to. Matter of fact, if you bend it up back and forth, back and forth, you break it. Some wire that's thin enough, you can take scissors and you can cut it. But if you take that same piece of wire and you solder it or you weld it to a railroad rail, you know what's interesting? It's still the same piece of wire. It's not any stronger than it's ever been before. It's still flimsy. But because it is now soldered to the railroad rail, it takes on the strength of the rail. When the Bible says that God is our strength, he is saying that we are welded to God and we take on his strength. Not just that he gives us strength, we're strong because he's strong. Our strength is him. My friend, there are times when God walks beside us during difficult times and gives us the strength that we need to walk through them, but there are also other times when we just don't have enough strength to walk through it and he picks us up and takes us through. That's his strength. Sometimes God shields and protects us from trouble. Sometimes he doesn't, but when he doesn't and we trust him, he picks us up in his arms and carries us through. That's his strength. That's why Moses was able to write in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. The everlasting arms. So God is our refuge. God is our strength. Now notice the third declarative, all in verse 1. I know some of you are thinking, are you ever going to get out of verse 1? God is a very present help. Three very important words there. Very, present, help. Very, exceedingly efficient. Present means to exist or to be there. And help means to give aid or remedy. So what does that mean? Here's, here's three important insights about God's relationship to our trouble now. From those three words, number one is this. God has a proven track record. He is exceedingly efficient for any type of trouble or problem or trial or struggle or tragedy that you may be going through. As a matter of fact, that's what the word very means. He says, this is a very present help in time of trouble, trouble being a tight or a difficult place. You ever been in a tight or difficult place? The Amplified Bible, I love it, says this, he's well proven all, that is, uh, all this is saying here is that, now get this, you never have and you never will experience any kind of trouble, any kind of situation, 
any kind of trial, any kind of testing that God hasn't already handled efficiently at some other time in someone else's life. And because God's impartial, guess what? He'll handle yours also. That's the joy of having the Bible, isn't it? That's the joy of having the record. I mean, isn't it great to be able to go to 2 Kings 18 and 19 and watch how God handled Hezekiah's trouble and to be reminded God isn't impartial. If he handled Hezekiah's trouble, he'll handle my trouble. Because he's impartial. He's impartial. Not only that, secondly, God is never tardy or absent. He's never tardy or absent. That's what the word present means. It means he's always there. He always will be, be there. You and I are never going to walk through a difficulty alone because he's there. And not, not only that, he's there on time. You know why he's there on time? It's because he's always there. He's there on time because he never left in the first place. By the way, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, Sometimes in our prayers, you realize that sometimes we just pray really ridiculous stuff, don't we? And I've done it. Listen, I've done it. How many times have you heard someone say, or how many times have you said a prayer? And I've said it. You're praying for a missionary. You're praying for someone going through trouble. You say, God be with them. God be with them. What a ridiculous thing to pray. How can an omnipresent God not be with somebody? He's with everybody. He never leaves. He never leaves you. What I've learned to pray, rather than say, uh, God, please you know, be with him, uh, what I've learned to pray is for the person that that person might perceive and receive the reality of God's presence. I have to pray for God to be somewhere. I don't have to, you know, I, it's not me commanding God to say, God, get over there. You know, don't, don't you see them? Get over there. What are, you, what are you doing over here? Get over there. He's already there, folks. It's already there. The Apostle Paul, I think, experienced that in the city of Corinth when he went to Corinth to preach and evangelize, and he was the only one there, and the Jews didn't want him there, and the Greeks didn't want him there, and he began to feel all alone, and I think maybe for the first time in his life, at least there was a little intimidation on his part. And we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that the Lord came to Paul one night in a vision. He said this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. We just need to be assured of that sometimes, don't we? And no one will attack you to harm you. What did Jesus say in or God say in Hebrews 13a, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. So God isn't absent. He's never absent. He's never tardy. Thirdly, God is the only remedy. He is our very present help. That's what the word help means. An aid, a remedy. By the way, He isn't just, again, He isn't just a help. He's not one of several options to help you. He is the ultimate help. I think sometimes one of the reasons that you and I don't experience uh, or sense God's strength or presence in times of trouble is because we don't trust Him only. We, we don't trust Him alone. We, 
We think there are other remedies. It's not God only, it's God plus. Uh, for sometimes, uh, for us, sometimes it's God plus people. We think we gotta, there's somebody that's got to come along and help us. We need some person to help us. Now, I'm not denying the fact that God sends people into our lives to help us. Not denying that at all. But there are times, even when God sends those people into our lives, He doesn't want our trust to be in, him, uh, in the people, but He wants it to be in Him. But sometimes we do that. Jeremiah, God said to Jeremiah this in Jeremiah 17, verse 5. He said, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. There's an element of trust in all relationships, but I'm going to tell you this, and this is not some kind of pessimistic attitude, but people will fail us, won't they? Why? Because they're people. That just happens. People will fail us. And some people have all their hope in a person. All their hope is in a husband or in a wife or in a parent or in the government or in a pastor or I guess not the government. You can probably take that out. But <laughs> sometimes, it's God, sometimes it's God plus other resources, right? Or our own resources. We have the solution. I can handle this. I can work this out. David said in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Sometimes it's God plus wealth and money, possessions. We think that's our security. But Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God. He is our only remedy. He's our only help. He may send the others, but we need to look to him first. We need to look to him ultimately. Now, let's kind of bring this in for a landing, okay? What's the results of knowing and embracing God as our harbor? Well, we see that in verse 2 and 3. Therefore. Circle that word in your Bible. Therefore. It's a connective. And what he's about to say is based upon something he's just said. Well, what did he just say? He said, God is your strength. God is your refuge. God is your very present help. If all those things are true about God, what should be the results? Here's the results. Therefore, please mark these next four words. We will not what? Fear. We won't fear if the earth gives way. We won't fear if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We won't fear if, if its waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. We will not fear. The conclusion that is it just makes sense that if all these things are true of God, then what do we have to fear? And I think that's why the psalmist ends verse 3 with Selah because he said, I want you to stop there and think about that. Think about that. I go back to Hezekiah. You know what? He didn't trust in his wealth. He didn't trust in people. He didn't trust in his own resources. He took the letter and went straight to God. He says, you're the only one that can help me with this. 
And I believe the psalmist uses those descriptions in verse 1 that we just spent some time looking at this morning to tell us how confident we can be in a God who during times of calamity, disaster, and turmoil is always there. Always there. You see, what the psalmist is saying to you people, listen very carefully to this. He is saying that even if your world falls apart, even if your world falls apart, we're safe, secure, and we're comforted because He is our refuge, He is our strength, He is our very present help. Amen? You ever had your world crumble? Fall apart? The foundation go out from underneath you? Where'd you go? Where'd you turn? Who'd you turn to? How'd you try to fix it? What are you turning to now if your world's falling apart? And some of you may say, well, that hasn't happened to me yet. Well, the point is this. The point is not whether this is going to happen. The point is this. Where will you turn when it does? You can't wait till the earth gives way. You can't wait till the mountains collapse into the sea. You can't wait till the waters roar and the mountains tremble. You can't wait till disaster comes to decide where you're going to turn to. You need to do that now. Hezekiah knew exactly what to do with that letter because he'd already determined what he was going to do. And we must determine in our hearts where we're going to go to turn to who we're going to turn to when the pressure gets turned up and when we find ourselves in a tight place. What this psalm is telling us is not only can God be trusted, but that God is the only one that can be trusted in times of trouble. The only one. Who are you looking to for help? Who or what or where is your harbor, your safety, your security? I hope it's only in God. Because He is our harbor. He must be our refuge. He must be our strength. Because He is a very present help in difficult times. I don't know where you're at today, personally. I don't know where you're at as a church. I don't know what all is going on in your life. But I can't think of a better thought to walk away with this morning than God is our harbor. God is our harbor. Now next week we're going to look at God as our help. But this morning, let's just sila. Think about it. Think about that God is our harbor. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little assignment. You say, an assignment? You're new here. Why would you give us an assignment? Well, because I'll probably be gone in three weeks. So what are you going to do? And Sheldon's not going to give you my address. Here's what I'd like you to do real quick. And if you have an outline out there, you'll probably see it at the bottom. I'd love you this week to read Psalm 46 every day, the whole Psalm, but particularly verses 1 through 3 that we just covered every day. As a matter of fact, memorize it. Meditate on it. Chew on it. When trouble comes up, God is my refuge. Make it personal. God is my refuge. Go, Lord, you're my refuge. You're my strength. You're my very present help in this time of difficulty. This time of trouble. Get a notebook. Write down the things that God teaches you from those three verses. Because it's loaded. It's a smorgasbord. I love Psalm 8610 or 8110, where the Lord challenges his nation. Israel, he says, open wide your mouth and I'll stuff it. 
I love that. I, I, that's a little ad lib on the translation, but I'll stuff it. I mean, I'll fill it full. That's what God wants to do. Chew on his word, these three verses. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's stand together. By the way, Sheldon said I wasn't supposed to sing to you. (laughs) To close, we just close with prayer. Lord, it's been good to be together with your people. It's been good to open the word. Jesus said, that man cannot live and shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Thank you this morning for your word. Thank you that you are our harbor. Thank you you, that you are the one that we can run to. Thank you that you are our strength, that you are a very present help no matter what we're going through. Thank you that you're always there. Father, we don't have to ask you to be there. We don't have to wonder if you're there. We don't have to hope if you're there. We know you are the God who is there. And we love you for that. So bless us as we leave. May the words of our mouth and the words of your mouth And the meditations of our heart be on your word and be pleasing in your sight. Today we pray and throughout this week in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. You have a great day and a great week. And Lord willing, I will see you next Sunday.